This morning our readings begin with Psalms and then later on from the Gospel of Luke. Psalm number Psalm 75, the first 10 verses, and that's on page 581. We praise you, God. We praise you, for your name is near. People tell of your wonderful deeds. You say, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge with equity. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who hold its pillars firm. To the arrogant, I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak so defiantly. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. As for me, I will declare this forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob who says, I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Luke 22, starting at verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you, particularly if you're visiting with us this morning. It's a it's great that you're here. You've come in uh, partway through a series that we are exploring uh, answers for a questioning world. And we're asking uh, about these questions that our society is throwing up, whether biblical Christianity has answers uh, that um, are satisfactory or perhaps even that trump the answers that the world actually offers. And this morning we're looking at the issue of justice for an unfair world. Now, as usual, I'm going to show my hand. This is where we're going. We've got a bit of an introduction just to explore the topic. Uh, we're going to talk about the foundation for judgment, the nature of judgment, the cup of judgment, and the fruit of judgment. Now, I'd like to suggest that we have a bit of a mixed reaction when it comes to the idea of judgment. On one hand, we love it. And on the other hand, we hate it. And I think if you stop for a second and think about it yourself, your own experience, you'll recognise that little bit of an ambivalence in there. Let me explore this with you. We love it. As a society, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but the language of judgment is more and more in the public square. When people are speaking of issues, they are framing them more and more in the terms of justice. This is right. This is what we should do. 
That is wrong. Issues are being framed increasingly exclusively in the realm of justice. And sometimes can I actually say, they're right. They're raising issues that we need to confront and there are very strong justice elements to it. But can I say, it's almost exclusive. People try and get traction with their issue by claiming that this is an issue of justice. And it's really hard to argue against it, isn't it? Are you against justice? Would you want to answer that? So how do you oppose my cause, my crusade? It's very hard. If you disagree, you are not just wrong, but because you're fighting justice, you're perhaps even morally deficient, perhaps even evil. We have a society that uses the language of justice an awful lot. But for many of us, we're not really comfortable with it. And I'd like to suggest, I don't think our society is either. They talk about it, but I don't think they really get it. We see, and if you pay attention, you see new victims being created every day in the name of justice. You see the the crowds, particularly on social media, just pile onto people who step out of line to the, to, to the effect that some of these people actually take their lives. There is a new phrase, people now are cancelled, where you are just ruled out of polite public discussion, or maybe not even polite public discussion, just public discussion, you are told that you are no longer relevant. You have been cancelled. We have a society that we, we look at and we think, is that justice? But even more so, and speaking to the younger folk amongst us this morning, one of the slogans that is out there We hate justice when it comes to us. One of the biggest sins that you can actually commit in our society is to be seen as being judgmental. Don't judge me. Just type it into Google and see how many squillion things come up. But we have this society that that judges on everything but then screams out, don't judge me. Do you see the contradiction? Where did, we this, where did this come from? Because I don't think our society, I think we've got ourselves into a knot that we can't actually untie. How did we get here? Well, I'd like to suggest that one of the things that happened over the last couple of hundred years in our society is we moved away from what the, the, the philosophers and those kind of boffins that have more brains than maybe you or I, uh, they say they've moved away from moral absolutes. We used to think as a society that there was right and wrong. And this was linked to, ultimately, to God. But as we've moved away from God, we've moved away from moral absolutes. And so people now will not even recognise that evil is a real thing. We've moved into the realms of what those very smart people call moral relativism. It's what I call choose your own adventure. You decide what's good. And let me give you an illustration. There's a guy called Christian Smith, who's an American sociologist. He wrote a fascinating book called Lost in Transition. Um, And he interviews in this 
uh, a whole lot of what uh, we would call in Australia Gen Y, okay, for those kind of millennial people. I'm a Gen Xer, so if you're uh, born somewhere between 1970 and mid-80s, you're Gen X, okay, if you're born late 80s, you're starting to get into that Gen Y kind of millennial zone, he interviewed you, okay, and some people that are a bit younger than you, and he would talk to them about morality. And uh, let me put this up. This is an interview. This isn't his words. This is one of the girls that he interviewed. This girl says, I don't know that people like terrorists, what they do, well, it's not ultimately wrong to them. They're doing the ultimate good. They're just like, they're doing the thing they think is the best thing they could possibly do. And so they're doing good. Do you see this? She's talking about terrorists. She goes on. I didn't put it up because the screen wasn't big enough. I had this discussion with a friend recently and she's like, but they're murdering tons of people and that just has to be wrong. And I was like, don't you love the like? It's in here. But I was like, but do we have any idea if it's actually wrong to murder tons of people? This girl is not, she's not saying something that she doesn't believe. She's not saying something that it's a bit ironic. She honestly lacks the capacity to say that murdering tons of people is wrong. And I don't think she's alone. I think we as a society, we've moved away from definitive right and wrong. We've moved away from that solid foundation. And so we now lack the capacity to say that is right and that is wrong. And even more so, there's the, the, the scientists amongst us, particularly the biologists, uh, who like dabbling in a bit of philosophy, uh, they're starting to move into the realm of saying, actually, we are just a product of our genes and in our environment. And so there was a man by the name of Sam Harris. He's a bit of a pin-up boy for this group. Uh, you may have come across him. He wrote a book called Free Will. Now, I actually bought this book. I started listening to it as an audio book. The opening pages are a stomach turning. He details a crime against an innocent family where two career criminals uh, go in and basically destroy this family with all the horrendous detail that I'm not going to give you. But re- just recognise, um, I'm not easily spooked. Uh, this kind of reading this, it, it gets you. It's horrific. And what's his conclusion? The idea that we, as conscious beings, are deeply responsible for the character of our mental life and subsequent behaviour is simply impossible to map into reality. So he says they didn't do anything wrong. He would argue that they cannot be held morally responsible. To be fair to him, he says, yes, we should punish these people, but not in a sense of, retribution or justice, but we should restrain them and stop them from hurting others. But their actions are purely part of something that they have no control over, their genetics and their environment. Do you see where our society is going? We lack the capacity to say something is right and something is wrong, but then we have a society that deeply believes that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. We have a society that doesn't 
deal with this. You might remember the quote from uh, Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs that I read out a few weeks ago, where he challenges uh, the FBI agent and he says, uh, swans and typhoid, they're all from the same place as far as she is concerned. These people are arguing. There is no such thing as sin. But that means there's no no such thing as virtue. If there's no such thing as evil, there's no such thing as good. If there's no such thing as something that you can be held morally accountable for, there is nothing that you could be praised for. And it just goes into this big swamp. There's no sin, but there's no virtue. There's no crime, but there's no heroism. There's no sacrifice. There's no nobility. Where do we get to from here? What does biblical Christianity have to offer? Now, can I say, as we move to our second point, Christians, when I use Christians, when I'm talking about everyone who calls themselves Christians, there are lots of Christians out there who are not really comfortable with the idea of judgment. Okay, And I've had people say to to me as a preacher, Cameron, you should talk more about good things and positive things like love and forgiveness and grace. And hopefully we talk lots about that. But you know what? Don't, don't, don't bring us down. Don't talk about judgment. Just talk about love. And you know what? There's part of me that thinks, oh, that'd be really nice. But can I say, if you do that, you actually emasculate Christianity. You actually take the power of Christianity and you turn it into something that is just a bland moral system. We need judgment. And the Bible clearly teaches us that God will judge. We stood this morning and what did we say? I believe, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He will come to judge the living and the dead. We declared it. Maybe you're just saying the words that are on the screen, you didn't really mean it. But can I say that if you are a Christian and you take God's word seriously, you cannot get away from judgment. Psalm 75. We love the Psalms, don't we? They're songs of praise. Wow, and this one started off really well. We praise you. We praise you for your name is near. People tell of your wondrous deeds. Is that not a great intro for a psalm? But then he somehow gets it a little bit wrong in verse 2, doesn't he? He says, you say, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge. Psalm 75 is a song of praise to God who is the judge. Now, it's funny. uh, Music is one of those things that gets everyone going, okay? Okay. Um, You can have lots of opinions about lots of things, but if you want strong opinions, ask people about church music, okay? Uh, And uh, I have lots of people come up and tell us we should sing more or less of certain songs. Not so much actually in this congregation. You guys are pretty good. Uh, But uh, I imagine if I started choosing lots of songs that were like Psalm 75, we praise you, God, because you are judge and you are going to hold everyone accountable I wonder how long it would be before you started coming to me and saying, Cameron, can we sing some other songs? I don't know if it would make your iPod playlist. I don't know if you'd have it on Spotify or whatever it is that you've got there. Or for some of us, whether you'd have it in your cassette tape on your 
your eight track or whatever it is, those old things. But the Bible tells us that there is a God and he is a judge. By what basis does God judge? He, got, he judges on the basis of his character and his nature. And the Bible tells us things about God that mean that he is uniquely qualified to judge. Not only does he have the capacity, he actually has the right. Tells us that God is a God of power. So you might know Genesis 1. God is a God who says, let there be and there was. God is a God who speaks, who commands creation into existence. He is one who created each of us. And even to a much greater degree, as we would recognise that parents have the right and the responsibility to judge, discipline their children, God has the right to judge his creation. He has the power. He is holy. When the Bible speaks of the holiness of God, sometimes it talks about his his otherness, his separation from us. But more often than not, he's talking about the moral perfection. And so Habakkuk, the prophet, he speaks of God and he says, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. The Bible tells us that God is a God of power and a God of holiness and a God of justice. He will judge. I choose the time. It is I who will judge with equity. Equity, fairness. There's not going to be a miscarriage of justice. God will judge and he will judge according to his holiness with absolute fairness. Abraham, when he's talking with God about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he pleads with God and he pleads with him on the basis of his justice. And Abraham is saying, God, you cannot sweep away the innocent with the guilty. And what does he say? He comes to God and he says this, will not the judge of all the earth do right? What's the answer? Of course he will. He will do exactly what is right. He will judge with power, according to his holy nature, with absolute justice, fairness, equity, and with perfect knowledge. Jesus speaks of this in Luke 12. He says, There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. God is saying, Jesus here is saying, every secret will be laid bare. Romans 2 Verse 16, God says that God will judge the secrets of people's hearts. Not just the things that you've done, down to the motive, down to the reason why. Now, we're talking about justice. And some of you might be thinking, oh, come on, come on, come on. Cameron, you're telling me that scripture is telling you that there's this perfect, all good, all-powerful God who will judge. Okay, 
So why does this God tolerate injustice now? You might be thinking, okay, there can't be a God like that. And you know, you're not alone in thinking that. This was a, a reporter after the, uh, the tsunami back in Aceh. He wrote this. He said, if God is God, he's not good. If God is good, he's not God. You can't have it both ways. Now, can I say, this is a good question. It's not one that catches Christians by surprise. It's one that has been asked for as long as there have been Christians. It's actually been asked for much longer than that because the whole book of Job, one of the 66 books of the Bible, one of the books of the Old Testament, deals with this very question. How can a good God allow injustice? Now, I want to answer this just very briefly and just say the Bible tells us that God could. So we have to ask, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he stop it now? Now, there's numbers of things you could say to that. But one of the best things, uh, best illustrations of this is, uh, remember back when you were about seven or eight, okay? Maybe even think about parents, think about your kids after church. They get about 10 minutes after church, maybe 15 minutes, they're starting to get a little bit twitchy, aren't they? Because you want to talk to people. And they're going, oh, all you do is talk. You know, we grown-ups, we have parties where we just sit around and talk to people, don't we? They have parties where they jump around and do all sorts of crazy stuff. But we, we talk, and they, a kid looks at grown-ups and go, I don't get it. Like, what's that about? But that's so much of our lives, isn't it? That as adults, a child would look at our life and think that is incomprehensible. It makes no sense. Why do you want to stand around and just talk endlessly? A child cannot grasp what an adult's motivation might be. It's just beyond their capacity. Is it possible that God might have a motivation that we can't see? That God might have a motivation that is beyond our capacity. And this is what the book of Job is actually dealing with. And at the end, Job, having suffered horrendously, gets no answer other than, I am God. The implicit message is, you can trust me. Romans 8 tells us, that in all the sufferings of life, that nothing will take us away from the love of God, that nothing can separate us. We hold on to those promises. We may not know why this and why God allows that. We may not have the specifics. We don't have the specifics. But as Charles Spurgeon said, when you cannot trace God's hand, you must trace God's heart. But I want to flip it around. If you're a non-Christian, if you're someone who's wrestling with this, you and think, ah, oh, come on, Cameron, that's a bit of a lame answer. Well, I want to flip this round and get you to answer this one. I'm not going to literally pull you up on stage, but maybe you're a Christian and you've had people throw this one at you. And so maybe this question is something you could politely and lovingly turn back. Okay, 
we have um, the situation is, well, does the world do a better job at explaining suffering and evil? Richard Dawkins, who some of you will know, wrote a, a book. He wasn't very complimentary about Christianity. It's called The God Delusion. Uh, and in it, he says this. He's speaking of natural selections. Dawkins is a biologist. He loves evolution and natural selection, which is that process driven by you know, survival of the fittest and all this kind of stuff. And he says, you need to be steeped in natural selection. Immerse in it. Swim around in it before you can truly appreciate its power. Okay, natural selection is the impersonal process of the survival of the fittest. So, racism. What's your problem? One race, stronger than another, oppresses another. Survival of the fittest. What's your problem? It's evolution in action. Why do you object? A strong person picks on a weak person in the schoolyard. What's the issue? Survival of the fittest. It is right. It is natural. It is according to nature. Two career criminals brutalise and murder a family. Why have you got an issue with that? It is purely survival of the fittest. you see it? Some of you are sitting there going, I can't believe you could even raise that. You're talking about my child being bullied in the schoolyard. Now, I'm not for a second condoning that. But an evolutionary perspective tells me that that is survival of the fittest. And the fittest should get to the top. And that is good and that is right for our species and the propagation of the best genes. And if that means that my race picks on your race or your race picks on my race, we have no foundation to call that's not fair because it's natural. The strong should exploit the weak. The fit should be the ones that survive. The rich should exploit the poor. One race exploiting another, who cares? Alvin Plantinga, who's a Christian philosopher, he sums this up for us. He says, a secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And this, and thus, sorry, no way to say there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. The Christian says racism is horrific. Bullying is appalling. That these things are evil and connected to our rebellion against God. A secular mindset says it's behavioural determinism. It's not wrong. And a strict evolutionary view might actually say it's actually right because it's survival of the fittest. But none of us think this. And I think I can go and find someone who has no particular belief in God and they will defend the bully, uh, the, char- the bullied against the bully. They will, de- they will decry racism and they do every day around the world. We need judgment. Let's go on. Let me tell you three things about this judgment in specifics. It is temporal. It is time-based. They all start with T. That's why I've got a weird one up front. Okay. God actually says in Psalm 75 verse 2, I choose the appointed time. He is speaking of an event that the New Testament speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. 
He says we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He speaks of the event that Christians talk of as judgment day. Yes, the idea of standing before a seat, it's a metaphor drawn from the ancient Greek and Roman custom of the judge sitting up on behind the bench kind of thing, that kind of idea. But what he's saying is there will be a day where every person, each of us, may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Judgment will happen time-based. It will be total. We're often quite happy for God to judge them, but we're not as happy for God to judge us. But he tells us here that he cuts the horns off all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. So both the wicked and the righteous are in judgment. Genesis 18.25, we looked at before, says the judge of all the earth, not some of the earth. And 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, we all must stand before the judgment seat. It is total and it is terrible. This is an image, probably a familiar one. It is God who's judging. He brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup filled of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. It's the cup of the Lord, the cup of the wrath, the judgment of the Lord. You can find images, references to this in Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25. And when you read there, it speaks of the ruin and destruction, the famine and the sword, images of judgment. But here in Psalm 75, it speaks of the judgment that is coming at the end, the time when God calls all to account. And the Bible tells us this judgment, temporal, total, terrible. I have to ask, how are you feeling? The Bible recognises how it should make us feel. Psalm 130, just ignore the reference down the bottom. Psalm 130 verse 3. Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? Romans 3 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Malachi 3 verse 2, a verse picked up in Handel's Messiah. Who may abide the day of his coming? He will be like a refiner's fire. Who can stand? Where is your confidence? Are you confident that when that day comes, and it will, and when you stand and you will, that you will be acquitted? The prophet Isaiah sees the Lord on his throne. And the cherubs circling, proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah the prophet in the temple falls on his face and says, Whoa, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah recognizes he hasn't got a leg to stand upon. 
The Apostle Peter sees a glimpse of Jesus' majesty in in an incredible catch of fish. And he says, depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Who can stand? If we think we can on our own merits, we're either shortchanging God We're making him smaller. We're taking away his power and his holiness and his justice. Or we're actually minimising our sin. But the amazing truth is the Bible tells us there is one who drank the cup for us. Mike read for us, Jesus in Gethsemane. Not much phased Jesus. If you read the Gospels, He's a guy who seems to be on a steady foundation all the time. Nothing phases him. People come at him left, right and centre and Jesus is there. In Gethsemane in the garden, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is afraid. There is apprehension. But he's not afraid of the horrific pain of crucifixion. He's not afraid of the shame and the abuse and the degradation that he knew was coming. He did not doubt that his father would deliver him. What did he fear? He feared the cup. Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. The cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices that represented the judgment of God on sinful humanity. And Christ willingly took up the cup and drank it to its dregs for us. At the end, before he dies, he declares, It is finished. He could have said, I have drunk it to its dregs and there is nothing left. And he did this for us. He drank a cup of wrath without mercy so that we might drink a cup of mercy without wrath. He offers it to us, freely given, if we will but trust So what is the fruit? Let me just spend a few minutes. I've told you that you need judgment. Well, at the moment, I've talked to you about grace. I've talked to you about, yes, judgment is coming, but grace is available. But you need judgment. Let me tell you a few things about this. Can I suggest that without the knowledge that we have a God who will judge absolutely fairly, Violence can never be restrained. Some of us have grown up in communities, in countries that are ripped apart by violence between groups. I'm uh, old enough that I remember the war in the former Yugoslavia. Do you remember that? When you had Serb and Croat and Muslim. And there was another group in there as well, I think. And they just brought up age-old grievances against each other. And the genocide was horrific. Look at the Middle East. Look at different nations around the world where people take up 
arms against others. The only way to short-circle that cycle of violence is to trust that there is a God who will set all things straight. Because if there is no judgment, if this life is all that we get, the only way they're going to get judgment is if they get it now. And I need to give it to them. Do you see that logic? And so, you take up arms. I read a story during the week. And can I say, this isn't a particularly anti-Muslim story, even though the main character is a Muslim. She was a Muslim lady, grew up in the former Yugoslavia. She was a teacher, lived in this integrated community where there was a range of different people, range of different nationalities, but when everything broke apart, her neighbour raped her, abused her horrifically. Her colleague, her former, uh, the one that she taught with, kicked her again and again and again and the child that she conceived from that assault, she named him Jihad and she promised that she would teach him to hate and on the breast she told him, may this choke you if you do not grow up to hate what they did to me. How do you break that cycle of violence? If there is no judge, you cannot do that. You cannot do that. But a knowledge that there is a judge who will set all things straight allows us to let it go. Miroslav Volf, I think he's Croatian, who's part of this, Christian. He says this, to triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. The first happens when an evil deed is perpetrated. The second victory, when evil is returned. After the first, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. The knowledge that God is judge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And that he will do it better than we can ever do it, with more justice, with more righteousness, Because all sin fundamentally is a sin against him first. The Lord will set straight the injustices of your life. You don't need to do that. You can leave it in his hands. And the gospel tells us that we, like those who abuse us, are made in God's image. That we like those who abuse us, are desperately needing his grace. We have more in common, even though horrific sin may divide us. Judgment enables forgiveness. It also recognises human choice. It recognises our capacity to make choices. If we are just a a bundle of genetics thrown into an environment, it dehumanises it. It, We lose dignity. If you're told that no choice that you make is really your choice, it's just your genes and your environment. Really? Judgment dignifies human choice. Judgment gives us a foundation for morality. We can actually say that killing tons of people is actually wrong. 
and we can work for justice. Not to seek vengeance because vengeance and judgment belongs to the Lord, but because we know what it is to be forgiven. Judgment actually allows for tolerance. Now that might surprise you because Christians are not widely regarded as being the most incredibly tolerant people because we believe in absolute morality and we say there is a right and there is a wrong and there is a good and there is a bad. But can I say, the Bible says, do not judge. Ultimate judgment is in the hands of the Lord. If we judge in order to condemn, that's what Jesus is talking about. If we judge in order to exclude if we judge in order to make the person other, to push them out, we are doing what Jesus tells us not to do. But because we have a God who will set things right, who will set things straight, it actually allows us to be with people that we might fundamentally disagree and we might actually find their opinions offensive But you know what? We have more in common, like we talked about last week, God's image, our need for grace. It binds us together and we can leave judgment to God. That doesn't mean that we are undiscerning. That doesn't mean that we don't actually offer an opinion about what is right and good and true. But it means we can do that without needing to condemn because that condemnation does not belong with us. The last thing, and I promise the very last thing, it actually reveals to us the depths of God's love. I want you to imagine today, you come home from church and one of your good friends is there, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, and they say, oh, someone dropped around while you were out at church this morning and they were collecting a bill that you owed. Okay, but I've paid it for you. Okay, how do you, how do you know how to respond Of course you'd say, oh, thanks. Okay, but you'd want to, what kind of bill have you paid for me? Oh, it was the next door neighbour. And, and, you know, he bought you a coffee, but he wanted the $3 back. Oh, thanks, really nice of you. It was actually your bank coming to foreclose your mortgage. And I've discharged your mortgage in full. Is there a difference of response? Of course there is. And so when we look to the judgment that fell upon Christ, when we see the debt that was paid for us, it should make us, it should make us weep for joy. John Piper said this, how can one man in a matter of hours, drain the cup cup of God's wrath that would have taken an eternity to pour out on me. When we see judgment, we see grace. When we see what Jesus drank, when we know what forgiveness costs, are we not prompted to ask, Is not grace amazing? Let's pray. Lord, we are...
part of a society that has forgotten, that has walked away from absolutes, has turned its back upon you as the source of all morality. And so, Father, is a society that struggles with justice. It craves it, but it cannot deal with it. Father, through Christ, you have dealt with it for us. You have shown us that wrongs will be set right, that sin will be punished. But on the cross, Father, in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, judgment did fall and sin was punished. So through him we might know forgiveness. Lord, we pray that we might live as people, people of justice but people of grace, people who know that you will judge and who are prepared to leave that judgment in your hands, people who offer the forgiveness that is ours in Christ to all, knowing that all have sinned and fall short of your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.